Welcome to Corizant Technologies, home of the Digital Executive Podcast. Welcome to the Digital Executive. Today's guest is Dr. David Hansen. Dr. David Hansen develops robots that are widely regarded as the world's most human-like in appearance in a lifelong quest to create true living, caring machines. To accomplish these goals, Hansen integrates figurative arts with cognitive science and robotics engineering, inventions, novel skin, materials, facial expression mechanisms, and collaborative developments in AI with humanoid artworks like Sophia the Robot, which can engage people in naturalistic face-to-face conversations and currently serve in AI research, education, therapy, and other uses. Dr. Hansen worked as a Walt Disney Imagineer, both as a sculptor and technical consultant in robotics, and later founded Hansen Robotics. As a researcher, Dr. Hansen published dozens of papers in material science, artificial intelligence, cognitive science, and robotic journals, including SPIE, IEEE, the International Journal of Cognitive Science, IROS, AAAI, AI Magazine, and more. He wrote two books, including Humanizing Robots and Received Several Patents. Dr. Hansen was featured in the New York Times, Popular Science, Scientific American, Wired, and the BBC. He also received earned awards from NASA, NSF, Tech Titans, Innovator of the Year, RISD, Cooper Hewitt Design Triennial, and he co-received the 2005 AAAI First Place Prize for Open Interaction of an AI System. Dr. Hansen holds a PhD in Interactive Arts and Technology from the University of Texas at Dallas and a BFA in Film Animation Video from the Rhode Island School of Design. Well, good afternoon, David. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate this. Like I said, trying to get in contact with you for a while, working with some of your PR folks, but you're doing some amazing things. And one thing that we just, you know, learned about about a a month ago or so was the fact that Sophia was selling some of her digital art. And and I know you did uh, fairly well on that. And so again, continued success with Sophia and some of the uh, exposure that you and, and she is getting out there. So thank you. So David, let's talk about your background. Again, we talked a little bit about design and arts, technology, entrepreneur, but really right now you're the founder of Hanson Robotics. Could you maybe share with our audience what drives you and what has contributed to your success? Sure. Yeah. I am passionate about the creative exploration of big questions. You know, where do we come from? Where are we going as a, as a species? What does it mean to be human now and into the future? We're at a, such a, an amazing and curious moment in history. And yet, uh, you know, all the wonders that we're introducing, we're also introducing perils. You know, it may be that there are many possible futures that we're facing. And so then we have to, you know, rally. What can we do to steer our reality towards a very positive outcome in the next 40 or 50 critical years in the evolution of this planet? So as a kid... The ideas of evolution and cosmos and our place in it were driven by, you know, very imaginative scientists and science fiction writers, dreamers out there. So I was very lucky to be alive at a point where Carl Sagan was on with Cosmos, talking about not just the physics, but philosophy and putting everything in this human context. And the science fiction writers like Isaac Asimov and Ursula Le Guin and, and Philip K. Dick were very inspiring to me. So in many regards, this uh, this undertaking, you know, this sort of enterprise, commercial enterprise of Hanson Robotics and uh, and what we're doing with Sophia, we have to make it a practical going concern for business and seek great commercial results. However, those commercial results, the money is a means to continue investigating these questions and quests 
to explore the mysteries of existence and facilitate the ongoing existence of human civilization. With my design, my art, and sculpture, animation, the interactive fiction, narrative development, the, all of the technology development with the materials, bio-inspired materials, bio-inspired robotics, bringing together many areas of robotics from uh, facial, social robotics, animatronic, if you will, combined with social robotics, the artificial intelligence and social interaction, natural language processing, computer vision, the cognitive AI, and collaborations with various leaders in these areas, grasping manipulation, lo- locomotion, walking robots like, uh, you know, Kais, the AI from SingularityNet, and Ben Gertzel's team, and other AI projects, bringing all of these together in a unified package as a platform. Sophia is a platform then for investigating cognitive robotics embodied cognition effectively through this kind of human-like cognitive robotics. The results then become a kind of artistic medium as well as a platform for research and development and a platform for helping people in healthcare applications and and, uh, education and so forth. So it's such a renaissance right now, although it's not fair to call it a renaissance. I mean, it's a renaissance in the sense that it's a, you know, a multidisciplinary creative phase of history, but it's a renaissance because there's never been a phase like this in history. So it's not like a rebirth per se. This is a true dawn for cognitive robotics. You're, you're absolutely right on that. And as you know, there's been a lot of talk around this fourth industrial revolution. And I, I understand that's more than just the cognitive uh, AI we've been just talking about, but it's absolutely amazing. And David, as you know, as you and I are about the same age growing up as kids, you know, we thought, oh my gosh, our imaginations are, are crazy. But looking fast forward 20, 30 years, it's like, wow. Our imagination actually was the genesis for all this creativity and uh, some of the output that we're having and see today. So I appreciate you sharing that. That's awesome. Question on Sophia, because people have been asking me and I, I and, and I, I want to obviously I'm not the expert. I'm, you're the founder of Hanson Robotics, the creator of Sophia, but your famed lifelike creation and robot. What inspired you to create her? Well, Sophia is the descendant of many other robots that I had developed. And um, my first robot was telepresence robot designed to be a kind of avatar robot. And I built that in 1994 while I was at Rhode Island School of Design taking some robotics and AI courses at Brown University. And that telepresence robot had a self-portrait face and it was remotely controlled. So I built a rig with encoders, position encoders to detect my head uh, pose and head position. And it had some thumb toggles for controlling the robot and two-way audio communication. And it was on a small mobile base. So it could do face-to-face conversations with people. And I called it the Out-of-Body Experience Project, or OBE. And so I took it out on the streets of Providence, Rhode Island, to interact with people. I built a number of other robots. Then I started at Disney as a sculptor and I built some robots there. And then through my PhD, I made between three and five robot designs every year, which I showed at science conferences and some researchers took interest in. Then had uh, sometimes they would purchase the robots that I made, like uh, the Evo robot was purchased by the University of Bristol, and one was purchased by the Jet Propulsion Lab. And there were custom commissions like a portrait of Charles Babbage for Cambridge University, Peter Robinson's group, Ibn Sena for the United Arab Emirates University, and pretty much paid my way through graduate school. But some of the robots, you can see some of the aesthetics in uh, Jules, 
and uh, the K-Bot and Hertz and Eva and the Diego San robot made for the University of California at San Diego. You can see the aesthetics of Sophia emerging through, through those years. The clear uh, back of the head where you see the components on the inside, the development of a wide variety of, of backgrounds and diversity. Like at first, I was a lone PhD researcher, but I had the fortunate opportunity to collaborate with many people and build these diversified teams. So bringing in many voices into the project then also meant many influences. So the robots were uh, Hispanic, like Diego-san, and Arabic, like the, and, and Persian, like the uh, Ibn Sina robot, African-American with the Bina 48 robot, and diversified on the team. So for the Bina 48 robot, we had Kino Corsi, who was African-American, and Bina uh, Aspen Rothblatt, who participated in the development of the the personality was the subject of the robot, Martine Rothblatt, who was uh, the sponsor and, and collaborator on, on that project. We wound up having these like, remarkable and brilliant teams participating in this. And all of that went into Sophia. So the idea of Sophia came really from a seed from a Philip K. Dick novel called Valis, which is Vast Act of Living Intelligence. It's a semi-autobiographical novel where Philip K. Dick was trying to explain what really happened to him with what he considered to be a transmission, a massive transmission of information into his brain from what he called the pink laser experience of 1974. He received all this knowledge and he spent the rest of his life trying to explain what the heck the experiences were. And Valis, in that novel, is alter ego, horse lover, fat, then winds up connecting with the physical manifestation of Valis, which in the novel was called Sophia. It was a humanoid, you know, basically like this AI god in this human-like form receiving this transmission on a continuous basis from this vast act of living intelligence system, what we might call the technological singularity. But Philip Dick himself believed, rationalized, that it was our technology and our organisms evolving together into the superorganism in the future that would become this, you know, sort of almost like a godhead hatching from an egg that would be our civilization and natural history. And then bootstrapping itself into existence through these kind of quantum information transmission. Crazy sci-fi stuff, yes. But it's very inspiring. And this idea of a self-reinventing superintelligence is, I think, it's profound and plausible and may happen in our lifetimes. And if it does, it would be the most significant event in history. So the idea of creating a seed for that human AI symbiosis that could evolve forward in this way as a character, as a new science fiction form, using artificial intelligence and robotics as our medium for science fiction was an exciting prospect. So one of the robots that I had developed in collaboration with a bunch of AI researchers and other artists and so forth, but it was very uh, privileged to have the, the idea and lead the project was, that was the Android portrait of, the, of Philip K. Dick, bringing Philip K. Dick himself back to life as an Android that you could have a conversation with, powered by statistical machine learning that was trained on Philip K. Dick's writing and letters, nonfiction, writings, lectures, interviews, as well as his fiction. So, you know, making this as a platform for AI research and development, and it won the first place prize for the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence, open interaction in 2005 so that AI dialogue system combined with this robotic interface was a, an award-winning leap forward in open dialogue in 
2005. That project has stayed alive. And we have a latest version, by the way, with Ben Gertzel and the Singularity Net, which is uh, using transformer neural networks. And it's more effective and capable than ever. So that's a really exciting ongoing research project with Professor Dan Popa also. But in short, Sophia is kind of a sequel to that. So both were inspired by the novel and experiences of the real Philip K. Dick. And Sophia then was designed with many faces from around the world. I referred to the facial anthropology of people from the Inuit to the Ainu people to Chinese to African to European, you know, just faces all around the world. So studying these face features, also the sort of neural correlates of beauty in facial anthropology. You know, the standards of beauty and the statistical averages of beauty preferences from these different cultures. And I also referred to art history. So I found the portrait of Nefertiti particularly striking, not just because of the beauty, actually not because of the beauty, but because of the power of the personality and presence that you sense through the bust of Nefertiti. You sense a personhood there. And that really inspired my sculpture. I also was referring to Hollywood, you know, examples uh, because some faces in Hollywood really stand out and also Chinese actors. So more than that, I had my wife who also posed for my study for previous robots, the Alice robot, the Geneva Evo robot. I also had her pose for, and those robots also, you'll notice really those old robots from 2008, 2009, 2010, they resemble Sophia. So it's clear that they're the older sisters of Sophia. But I had my wife sit for me while I was sculpting the, the bust, the, the sculpture um, in clay of uh, Sophia. And I think all of that consideration, I spent more time with you know, over a year on the sculpture. I was really kind of um, lost and immersed in it for, for a year. So I put more love and attention into this piece, into the foundation of Sophia than any other robot that I made, because I wanted it to resonate with me, with my heart. And if it was magical for me, then I felt like it would really be magical for other people. Perhaps, I'm not sure. But I also wanted it to be this universal robot platform. So put a lot of time and attention into how we could develop it so that the mechanisms would be small enough to fit into almost any size head. If the mechanisms and the designs are small, then they can fit into larger heads. So, you know, male heads and also female heads and potentially uh, small enough that it could fit into adolescent type faces. So it would be adaptable to see many different kinds of identity. So it might not be obvious, but if you notice in some of the videos, you'll see that, that the head is actually pretty small relative to a normal human adult size face. That's for a reason. So we are also designing it for scaled manufacturing. And it's taken us some time, you know, since we unveiled the robot five years ago, it's taken us some that much time. But now we're on the threshold. We've made 27 Sophia so far, and we have the assembly line that we're gearing up for beta production. So beta Sophia is going to be ready by, we think, August of this year, rolling dozens of units at first off the assembly line and then moving into hundreds and thousands. And the Sophia line of products can be other characters, male, female, no gender whatsoever, any ethnicity, new, you know, robot identity type characters. So when I say that we're talking about the beta Sophia assembly line, it's also the siblings of Sophia that will be coming off that assembly line. So that was the intention all along with the robot. The vision was that they would be a platform for many applications and many types of research and artistic expression as well. 
Wow. That is awesome. There's so much creativity. As you know, you've, you had a lot of people that had input into this, including your wife and previous robots and working with Ben Gertzel, of course, uh, he was on this podcast as well. So I think you're absolutely right. Your passion, your creativity, your drive, your experience as a child experiencing science fiction and, and imagination, right, has really developed this amazing robot called Sophia. And I just love the inspiration, especially around the, the story in the book as well. I want to talk a little bit about some recent events, David, as you know, back in March here, if you could just tell us a little bit more about the digital art Sophia created and sold or issued as a non-fungible token or NFT. Do you see digital art and the creation of NFTs becoming mainstream and will their value continue to go up or go down? What's your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. The power of non-fungible tokens is not just in art auctions. The power of being able to create a unique signifier associated with bodies of information then means that we will be moving towards the information economy, the AI economy, where information is the new money. And that is a profound transformation. There, there are technical challenges that have to be overcome, like you know the energy-efficient creation and processing of non-fungible tokens, the true extensible power of smart contracts and the integration of that with with the global economy beyond the two leading cryptocurrencies like Ethereum and Bitcoin. So there's technical and logistic and mathematical challenges associated with, with this and fundamental computing technologies that have to be overcome, like the ability to generate non-fungible tokens with very little energy cost. But as we do that, then you can associate NFTs, non-fungible tokens, with any copyright, with copyrighted code, pieces of code, codelets, apps with data and bodies of data. So then your trained model can, you know, small or large could have NFTs associated with them. And then you can create an NFT map of the entire infosphere. You know, we talk about the stratosphere and the biosphere, but we human organisms and organisms in general, the entire biosphere, including humanity, is an informatic landscape. And what distinguishes us from dead matter is the informational structures, the pattern of our existence. So non-fungible tokens are a way of codifying that and turning that into the market landscape. So it will be profoundly transformative for the entire future of the economy. It's the foundation of the, the next wave of the fourth industrial revolution. Absolutely. And I love this, the stuff we talk about here, David, on this particular podcast and our platform is all about the emerging trends and, and emerging tech that's coming out. And, you know, I've interviewed dozens of CEOs from Silicon Valley and the stuff that's coming out today. I mean, we're, we're talking all aspects of technology cutting edge or bleeding edge, if you will, coming out and, you know, look at quantum, you know, quantum is here, quantum computing, you know, we're talking a billion times faster than your computer today. Imagine that technology applied with the robotics you're doing. I mean, there's just so many amazing things that are happening right now. It's just mind blowing. It really is. That's right. So the optical computing combined with quantum computing, the recent breakthroughs in the use of graphene with, you know, what could be considered origami techniques, you know, slight folding techniques to create um, new forms of semiconductors. They're really promising for, you know, not just like continuing Moore's law, but transcending Moore's law and the power of computing. Even uh, without extending Moore's law, the breakthroughs that are associated with modern computing just keeps using 
it is computers. It just keeps bearing massive fruit and yield and new algorithms and new trained models and new scientific discoveries and, and engineering discoveries. It, it's really a, a great golden age of invention and discovery. It's so overwhelming that it may be hard to see. You know, it's almost like you know, getting uh, there. There may be a snow blindness or a kind of information blindness that comes with trying to process it all. You know, what that also means is that it introduces a lot of chaos, and it can be difficult to predict the consequences, especially the unintended consequences. You know, on the human psyche, the and you may have a sort of chaotic thrashing as people struggle to adapt, and you know, economies struggle to adapt to it. I mean, we'll see massive abundance, but we also may see the kind of erosion of ecosystems, impacts on weather systems from technology, the existential crises that are known and unknown. So what we have to do, I feel that it is a moral prerogative to use our technologies to make ourselves smarter and to assume that we're not smart enough yet. We have to get smarter. We have to you know, strive to be smarter as individuals, as groups, and to make ourselves smarter through intelligence augmentation, working with these technologies to be able to forecast the future better than we have and find our path through that flurry of information and new technologies and their consequences, to find a path through that to a positive outcome. In a way, it's almost like a, an epic story quest, a heroic <laughs> struggle, the hero's journey for every person on the planet right now. We have to rise up to do better, to manage this planet better, to find our way to that positive outcome. So even though it's really exciting, and I'm in some regards very optimistic, I also see that we have to rise up and do better. There are perils. Absolutely. And I think even people like Elon Musk have have kind of sounded his warning around, you know, artificial intelligence and how we need to be thinking the long game and ethically and, and working together. So I do appreciate your comments on that. And David, it was a pleasure having you on today. And I look forward to speaking with you real soon. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for bringing me in to talk with you on your show. It's been a wonderful time. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye.